0: Hello, Fass here with the How To Academy podcast. How do we create meaning in our lives when the life we hoped for is put on hold? This week's guest, Kate Bowler, is an associate professor at Duke Divinity School, and she was forced to ask that very question when, aged just 35, she received a diagnosis of stage 4 colon cancer. It's a subject she explores in her book, No Cure for Being Human, and Other Truths I Need to Hear. She joined Hannah McInnes for a live stream event with us a couple of weeks back to reflect on what life really means as she approaches its close.
1: I just wonder if you could say in your words, essentially what's happened to you and and what brought you really to this place where suddenly life and how we live it needed yeah. a thorough reexamination <laughs>
2: yeah yes <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly it i um I had a like I had a plan for my life it was um it wasn't exactly everybody's dream, but it was it was absolutely mine. I wanted to be a historian I spent a zillion years researching and studying to be one my dad's a historian like I just had this uh Version of my life where it involved like a just a a musty library and a fleet of very grateful graduate students and like a few gargoyles, you know. Just, I it was a very wine and cheese vision of I thought I would have um, forever to accumulate a set of ideas and then to enjoy them, and then very suddenly when I was thirty five, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and it it just absolutely took my life apart. I immediately went from having someone who imagined that I would be around till I was 80 to being really told that I had about a 14% chance of surviving and surviving only meant two years. And so it was the, I just remember it was, it was, yeah, because we're kind of on the anniversary of it. It was the fall. And I remember being told that it was probably going to be June when it was over and just looking at the leaves and thinking, oh, like I, I guess time means something really different now. Did I ever really notice how the lovely leaves turn crisp and translucent? And uh, and I guess the whole thing kind of hit me at a at a few different levels because there's just this sort of regular absurdity of your life being the one that's taken apart as opposed to somebody else's. But I also happen to be a historian of the idea that good things always happen to good people and that you can always fix your life. And so I kind of just felt the intense irony of the of of wanting immediately to be the kind of person that could get back like to get back to a formula for how to live. so as part of my experience both as someone in crisis and tr- someone trying to figure out a way forward was I began to study the kinds of cultural scripts that I was being handed for how to live because, because I'm a giant nerd and that is my way. <laughs> and I like I have to I have to understand it on ten levels, or else I feel like I don't understand it at all.
1: <laughs> I love that all the way through the book. You say that now you're a giant nerd, but I mean it's so you take so much into your own hands. You know, you have doc surrounded by all the documents you possibly can be. And and it's an amazing thing to sort of read about. But as you say, so so, so much of this and so much you, you then kind of came to understand was how cut off from sort of reality, so much of modern day self-help narrative, yeah. that narrative is, you know, yeah. and nothing makes that clearer than the reality of being told you have a terminal illness. And, and obviously I'd love to explore that more, but perhaps you could relay the story where you begin the book, where you're in the hospital um, oh. <laughs> and you find yourself in the Starbucks, the moment of very shortly after your diagnosis
2: so i'm normally a very gentle historian i try to very lovingly and carefully describe the thought worlds of others and i wrote this um really quite really quite not snarky history of the prosperity gospel the idea that god wants to make you healthy wealthy and happy called blessed and so but my my expertise is in these televangelists and usually people with spectacular hair that that promise you that you can fix your life. And normally my response is how very interesting, but at that moment I had just been allowed to, you know, after surgery, you're kind of allowed, you really have to practice walking or else they won't let you go home. And um, so eventually I got to use the hallway outside of my hospital room, but then I found the elevator and then I just decided to hang around downstairs. And so I was like wandering the hallways with my little hospital gown and IV pole. And I discovered the hospital bookstore had an enormous display of Joel Osteen books, which is the um, pastor of America's largest church. And he has, he coined the term best life now. And every book is something like um, every day a Friday. And I saw it. And I absolutely lost my mind for, <laughs> for a second there. I went in, I began to carefully remove the books from the bookstore shelf and just place them on the ground. And then my, I think, I think honestly what I thought I would do was I'll just take apart this book display so no one else can see it. And then I will create some. So by then the hospital bookstore manager came out and was like, ma'am, like <laughs> what is, and I was like, look, I'm not a random person. I promise that I am a professor here at this institution, but I was mad. I was like, you can't sell this to me. You cannot sell the idea that I am to blame for my own illness. And, uh, at which point she was like, but it's a New York Times <laughs> bestseller. And she, she, uh, so I, I, made a list of, I thought very helpful suggestions of books that <laughs> didn't blame people for their illness. But by the time I came back, it had been replaced by copies of Joel Osteen's next book. Like you can, you will, I think was the title.
1: So, so they didn't, they didn't take on your advice. Sadly, then. <laughs> maybe now they hopefully have yeah. your book. I hope they have your book in place. But it's really interesting to me because I think that these narratives are all over the world. But you, in your obviously experience, are you write a lot about America. And you say um, at one stage in the book, this is the strange cruelty of suffering in America. It's insistence in the face of that, that everything is still possible. This sort of land of dreams and idealism. And it's there that these ideas of the best life now are so strong has it taken yeah. your illness to see how embedded they are and how destructive yeah. they can actually be?
2: Yeah. And that there's really no sort of religious and secular culture that separates. It's just, it permeates all of them. It's everything from the very, very religious versions, like the one that you hear on a Sunday morning to the person at your smoothie bar or the person giving you crystals slash essential oils slash telling you about your rising sign of Neptune, et cetera. It's like, you can't go anywhere here and and even in Canada, without the waging war against the, the sort of persistent belief that your mind and your words are so powerful, that your mindset is the most important thing for your survival, that the things that you say will come true. And if that's true, it means that if you're this, you know, it was one thing to sort of analyze it intellectually, write about it compassionately, but it was very different to realize that I I found myself almost unable to be honest about what was happening, that I was really scared, frankly, that like I I wanted to be able to stop. And, and so honestly, so much of this is gendered, that there's a real sort of theology of Instagram that women get saddled with. But I felt like I had to perform optimism, perform. I mean, honestly, if, if you'd think I would have signed a waiver for a reality show I didn't realize I was starring in. Like if you saw a video camera of me just gratefully so accepting of, of like I should write a gratitude list. I should perform certainty. And uh and all of this comes from this deep American ideology of exhausting positivity and endless futurism, that everything has to be getting better or else you've you have failed to look on the bright side and and live up to your potential. Meanwhile, I, I mean, what potential was there to be had? I like, I, I, w- I needed a language to account for reality. And w- in the meantime, I was just swimming in other people's certainties.
1: that's so interesting, that point about language, because you mentioned that you kept getting cards in the mail, you say, telling you to fight and kick cancer's butt. And it's that sort of language that, you know, you, you well-meaning, but I expect you wanted to write back and just tell them to yeah. words we can't say on.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was, um, I think this is just part of these sort of ideological tar pits we fall into sometimes when our lives suddenly become a test case of something else, a problem to be solved. And in the case of, of a tragedy, like something that's undone and can't be remade. People say wild things in the face of that. They say, um, I mean, they assume like a victory narrative, like you, like kicking butt or, or or beating cancer when in truth, I mean, it's it's the most unbelievably helpless situation to be in. I was on an immunotherapy trial, which is to say I was at the very edge of what science could do or could even describe. And I was, I was in a very delicate circumstance in which I was having to try to get into a clinical trial that if I was kicked out of or couldn't afford the parameters of that that because the United States does not have equitable healthcare, that it would bankrupt my family. So I'm already immediately helpless in the face of my illness. And then I, I didn't invent any of the drugs that I had to take. And I don't get to determine my own trial protocol because I'm I'm part of a bigger experiment. And so all the words that failed to understand the utter contingency of being sick just felt really flat and unhelpful and so well-meaning. But I think people are desperate to hold on to a feeling of agency and, and empowerment and certainty, mostly just out of sheer love. Like they're just so scared that you're stuck in a thing that no one can fix. But I was, I was scared too.
1: I mean, you, that's, you say that about the people around you. It's, it's born out of obviously uh, love But you say that friends and family, they they can't deal with the lack of hope, with the reality, which is a lack of hope. And at one point, I think you find quite a loneliness that descends on you. You say, I'm everyone's inspiration and no one's friend. And I I was so interested and struck by that statement.
2: I guess maybe that was part of the failure of this script that I'd taken on about attempting to be like the most lovable version of a suffering self. I really, at some point realized I had been auditioning for a long time because I, I didn't want to get left behind from everybody's life. Like you have the tragedy and then everybody everybody's there. Like they rushed in, it's the sort of house is on fire feeling. And crisis friends are a wonderful kind of friend and, and bless them. And there are certain kinds of people who just crush that stage. But then there's the chronic life. And what do you do when you still have the same problem and all the ideas they had didn't necessarily make much difference, but you still don't want to be exiled from the land of normal people. And that was a kind of loneliness that I wasn't sure I was really prepared for because I kept thinking that if I you know, remember everyone's birthday and just like try not to be a dick, this is like the great problem of the narcissism of pain is just you're trying so hard not to be the like living, um, you know, those like sandwich boards that are... (laughs) just like you, you kind of feel like you're a giant, like the end is the end is near the sandwich board. But after a while, I realized like hey, it's just it's time to like it's time to just let it let it breathe a little like some the the people that will be there in the long part of a divorce or an after of or of, of any kind is is maybe different than a, than the person who excels in a crisis maybe um maybe it's a different kind of friend that remembers and says, um, you're not alone. But uh, it, is, it is certainly very hard to adjust to a long-term uncertainty because, um, and you said hope, and I, I think a lot about that. I, I think I, I wasn't trying to, um, I didn't want to settle into hopelessness. I was just trying to give up on certainty. And that felt like I was trying to draw a line between those two things that felt sort of hard to communicate.
1: I mean that's the thing isn't it the the thing that you mention again and again of course the future suddenly is a language you don't speak anymore those are your words you you describe it as a cliff but was the answer it's so hard as you explore to find an answer to that because the answer to live in the moment is also not your ideal answer when you know living in the moment involves day to day pain and and difficult yeah,
2: yeah live in the moment, all these maxims, like you only live once or live in the moment or no regrets. I mean, all these versions of attempting to kind of lock you into a version of of presentism or or past or futurism, they've all got like little bits of wisdom to them. There are lots of great reasons to live in the moment, like the smell of my kid's hair. which always smells like strawberries. I'm not sure why, or he still calls the bed, the snuggle zone. And like, I just, I can't, I can't, I can't even handle sometimes how much um, certain people and love in your life can just transform minutes into moments. And what a, what a gift, but live in the moment doesn't solve the problem of my life or any of our lives, not always adding up like that. There is no good, good math on this. And I, uh, I, I have always, um, I wanted I've I just, you know, I I've always wanted like a six-step plan to smirk or smirk, like living a successful something or conquering my or mastering my like that how-to genre is so intoxicating to me because it imagines that it'll all add up but there has to be a different way of accepting a less it's like not 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 wanting to live in the future sometimes we should dream I love to dream but not imagining that that every bit of our past, our present, our future it has to add up to the feeling of unlimited love, hope, everything. I mean, that there is sometimes in scarcity, we do have to count our loves. We do have to count our days. We won't always feel like there's enough. Like that, ha- There has to be enough room in there for all of our humanity, I think.
1: I mean, there's a beautiful quote where you say the terrible, you did learn in a sense to live in the moment, but a different sort of a Moment from the one that perhaps the Maxims are, are trying to to tell us about. You say the terrible gift of a terrible illness is that it has in fact taught me to live in the moment. Nothing but this day matters. The warmth of the crib, the sound of his hysterical giggling, your son. And when I look closely at my life, I realise I'm not learning to seize the day. In my finite life, the mundane has begun to sparkle. The things I love, the things I should love, become clearer and brighter. So that yeah. was what happened. For all the fear that every small thing became enhanced.
2: Yeah. Wow. And that was um, like the crystalline clarity of, yeah, I, I remember waking up the next day and remembering all over again that that was going to be my last year and thinking, um, all right then, cookies. Shouldn't we, you know, you get very, um, when it, it's almost like it, when, when one thing just sort of fades to black, you get this crystalline, Lovely clarity. And that was that was really, truly beautiful and illuminating of all of the things that I love. But uh, the problem is it's really hard to live there. Like after weeks and months, there's still paperwork to be filed, and Linda from Hr to call and and finding trying to find a way to live beautifully without relying on the kind of perspective that a crisis brings, that to me has been, one of the interesting and hard questions I've been trying to grapple with.
1: Can we, uh, uh, these other maxims or these other things that we're all in, we're all living without recognizing that your illness, I feel made you realize a series of things made you question, as I said at the beginning. And one of them is this obsession with productivity. And you say, I'm slowly realizing that I have been a human bulldozer since I was a child worshiping at the altar of productivity. But then you started to observe that in everyone, in all of us going about our lives before we get hit by some awful experience. And you said, you know, then you were watching as your friends and family headed out the door for work, errands, anything, hungry for that feeling of being propelled through the world. So, I mean, was there a sense in which the illness sort of changed your perception of time and of of productivity and of kind of making the most of every moment in that sense, productivity-wise?
2: Yeah. I, well, at first, it made me worse. I really thought it would make me a little better. Like, oh, look, I'm, look at this infinite perspective I've gained. But I think I, I felt immediately the kind of tick, tick, tick of cancer. And I went back to what I knew, which was speed up. Yeah. Like, yes. master your day, get it done. Yeah. Like, I can be a Beast of productivity. Like you can see the crazy in my eyes right now. I know you can. It's just like I go, I'm like, that's it, and uh, <laughs> and so I just figured, then great. Familiar,
1: familiar look, <laughs> <laughs> in the mirror. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And
2: especially with, you know, then I just added existent, meaningfully existential moments plus momming plus work plus hospital. Like I just added to the list, and it was that feeling that that I was going to get my life done. And I found myself just like begging people for that feeling. I, I work in a, she said respectfully, geriatric profession where like all my professor friends are usually old men and I love them. And, uh, but they were the right demographic where I was like, great. Like how will uh, truly just tell me, what do I need to get done to feel like my life is enough? And cause from the, the immediate math was my son is two. How long do I need to be his mom to like be remembered, or like what? Like what do I need to pour into the foundation of all this to get this get this kid launched to have a career that I spent, I mean, a hilarious amount of time investing in. Like what? What's that feeling? And uh, I'll never. My friend, uh, my old man friend, was like, "Oh, Kate, but it comes undone." And I realized in thinking about his life and so many that I knew the feeling of just that, that there was infinity at the bottom of my inbox, like that there was some checklist I was really going to get to that the last thing would feel. Then I think part of it has been trying to make peace with the, not the never done-ness of it. Like the never, never done-ness. Cause I know that's true of, um, I know that's true of, of, of the loves in my life or even like the, like I love, I'm, it's true of the people I love. It's also true of the work that I love doing. And that was kind of fun to write about as a, a woman who never really reconciled ambition as being part of like, if you, if you find out you're going to die, are you really allowed to just spend a lot of time writing a hilariously specific historical book? <laughs> like, is that really I great. Wanted to,
1: I wanted to ask you about that because I, I found that such a, uh, in, you know, it was all a f- fascinating part of the book where you write a chapter, do, do what you love. And You say in your acknowledgments that the ability to work throughout this illness made my life not simply bearable but beautiful. You know, often people say, Oh, at the end, or when something like this happens, you won't look back and wish you'd worked harder. But actually, yeah, you seem to suggest, which you know will make people whose careers are a calling, as you say, feel I think better and more worthwhile. That actually. It felt worthwhile to you after a little bit of hesitancy to put your whole self into your work and to write the, yeah. that book and those essays,
2: yeah, I did. I mean, there's always that like, will you really want to say that you want to spend more time at the office like when you die? And the answer for me was, um kind of yeah, because I mean because the doing of it, because the because the doing of it was also part of the being, is that I. I didn't just want to sit in a waiting room doing puzzles and a lot of people need to just do puzzles and can't do more than puzzles in a cancer waiting room. But I, um, I had, I wanted to not simply be eclipsed by one single experience, but I wanted to learn to still have the dignity of being, being a little bit more, especially in just the course of a single day. So I did, I mean, hilarious things. I was in a hospital in Atlanta and I had to spend a lot of time there, but it turns out that Atlanta has a lot of mega churches. Would the celebrities of those mega churches like to come visit me so that I can interview them (laughs) while being infused with chemotherapy? Yes, they would. And would I love to interview them? (laughs) Yes, I did. So it was, I just sat there with my little clipboard because of the magic of being able to pour our finite gifts into something that feels worth doing. Mm. And also, um, And it also lets every day be a bit of a surprise. Like I I love the unfoldingness of being able to try. Like I I tend to be the person who accidentally cries when I watch someone do pull-ups at the gym, like a woman just like struggling on a butt. I was like, you can do it. But the truth is, it feels so good to try. And we have it in our work. And sometimes we have it in a dumb renovation project at home or just in being a better friend. But the feeling of still having some gas in the tank to give anything other than our own problems is I gave me back part of myself and I was so grateful for that
1: Mm. we've talked about sort of you you mentioning churches then and we've talked about this sort of maxims that society throws at you but but what about faith which obviously comes from society but from a difference of section I suppose than what we've spoken about the self-help genre you say we need people tell you we need not fear the uncertainty of life because God has a plan so how did all of this shake your faith or your perception of of what faith and God should be.
2: Yeah. When I was looking at those formulas, I realized how many of them were spiritual formulas for how to make our lives add up. And some of it was the prosperity gospel version, where if you're good, then the course of your life will add up. That the past will never really be lost to you. People say wildly untrue things like uh, nothing is lost. And uh, anyone's ever lost a child or can't move on after a, someone passes, they just, but they know that that's not true, but there's, there's so many formulas for how to live. The ones that were driving me absolutely bananas were the God has a plan. And therefore the point was for me to learn lessons. And therefore that will feel like enough. Aren't I becoming a more spiritual person? And like we talked about, the answer was kind of like weirdly. Yes, but also it, it was terrible math. And the, but also heaven will be wonderful. And therefore, and therefore what, like my, my son's life would not be diminished if I weren't his mom, like the, the promise of an afterlife or spiritual certainties felt really cruel to somebody who knew that, um, that, um, heaven mostly would just be missing it. This being all the people that I love. So I, uh, I I I spent. It took me a bit to be as over lessons, especially spiritual lessons, as I am. But so much more, um, so much more desperate for like this the great story about love is that most of figuring out the incompleteness of formulas was realizing that the solution then is 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 each other. It's it's endless interdependence because we will never be able to care for ourselves at least not for more than small stretches. And that I do believe as a person of faith that someday that there will be no more tears. But in the meantime, we are left with needing like the miracle of everyday love and everyday community to make up the difference. So in giving up formulas, I had to accept uh, a lot less certainty, but I hope a lot more love.
1: Mm. Well, we were talking about um that moment you said about the, the kind of loneliness uh I was we were talking about that earlier, and that really was a time when you had, i suppose been through the worst That was after that. Yeah. You're then examining this time where everything is still so uncertain, but well, perhaps you could explain you were one lucky, as people might have said. Yes, that situation that you found yourself in, and then and then we'll talk yes. about you know that that sort of the ac- actual fact that that wasn't necessarily a better feeling. Yes, lucky
2: often ended up being a very similar theology, really, a similar um, attempt to explain that. Yeah, uh, to explain what had happened to me, and I uh, lucky is. I recently just read another history of luck. I find it so interesting, but it usually means in common sort of usage that it was a very unlikely event, like surviving more than 14% chance of odds for cancer. It was an unlikely event with a happy ending. Um, The problem is of course, is that it's just, it's also another rationalization strategy to decide what, what was likely to have happened and then apply it to you. And in my case, Honestly, my entire cancer treatment, I've had to fight like hell. It has been an absolutely, it's a, biocapitalism is a, is a difficult thing for a a patient in a clinical trial to have any kind of agency in. And so every time that they decided I was lucky, it felt like it was also not understanding that for almost all of us, we get very, very few hard choices, but those choices are precious to us. So it's not just that things happen to us. Didn't just happen like we're all actors in it. And that's what we're trying so hard to hold on to is letting go of the everything is possible and not just saying that nothing was possible or that we were lucky whatever happened, but finding that little space of limited agency. And the word lucky is a bit unhelpful
1: for that. I, I feel like people will listen to the podcast and will see that I was very much inverted covering. <laughs> <The word. laughs> I felt it.
0: And um, for those
1: who don't who don't know what that sort of supposed luck that surgeons might have told you ha- what happened with the immunotherapy was that essentially they did get rid yeah. of, of of the tumors, which was unbelievably unlikely.
2: Yeah, I had a I had a very positive response to one of the drugs, uh, Keytruda, on my clinical trial, and clinical trials are are very intense regimens of like a, like a predetermined set of drugs. You have to take this. You don't really have a choice. And so I had a very positive response to one of the drugs and a pretty negative response to a few of the others. And then it radically shrunk down a tumor that they thought would, would never be able to be surgically uh, removable. It was truly amazing. The problem was is just that it was never over. So I then had to go through a life-threatening surgery to figure out if we could take out the rest, but didn't know if it was dead or dormant or gone. And then um, and le- then and then when when that went well, wonderful. <laughs> but now it just left. It leaves me with an endlessly dot dot dot. Like what is what is remission when we're not sure if cancer will be chronic? It's certainly better than it was. It makes for like the worst ending to a story when I'm like, and then it was pretty uncertain. <laughs> you just sort of trail off. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess I found that to be like the most, um, it was the most difficult part to explain is to feel so fortunate, but not really have any coherent set of um, explanations, but that everyone else was like rushing in with theirs. It was either a miracle or that medicine was 100% universally benevolent or, you know, any 100% argument always fell short.
0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before.
1: Mm-hmm. And you say, actually, that, you know, there, in a way, those moments, what was lost then was those moments, y- your words, not mine, you say when when you felt you were dying then, you actually have never felt more alive in this sort of very strange way that life felt magic. And there were moments of the most intense suffering that felt like gifts that were almost lost in the remission stage where yeah. suddenly the uncertainty was so strong. Yeah.
2: It is time is so bizarre that way. I mean, the way that it, um, because there, it's it's one of the w- terrible beautiful bits about tragic time. Is in tragic time, it can like f- sort of shine a flashlight down on on all these bright and beautiful things, and also be awful and unbearable. And then you have to kind of switch into ordinary time when there's traffic and. You really desperately want to gossip about your neighbor, which I do, which I do, Hannah. And I, you know, the, like all the ordinariness of your life seeps in and you're like, dear God, wasn't I just existentially (laughs) profound and layered there (laughs) for a moment and uh, allowing yourself to kind of live in different kinds of, um, of ways of, you know, ways of being a person, giving ourselves that grace for that. Not everything gets to be a moment.
1: Sometimes they're just these garbage minutes. I love the moment so much when you describe what you do when suddenly apocalyptic time uh, is present and you think, if this were the end of my existence, do I want to be here answering emails? Suddenly you say that you rent bulldozers And start selling your furniture on Facebook so that your husband has to comment underneath that. He quite wants that back. Please. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Seriously. I I honestly Hannah, I was
2: kind of unbearable in certain moments of apocalyptic time. I remember standing up in the middle of a very dignified work lunch and being, I just, I think I said was, I don't think I have time for this. (laughs) And I just walked out, but I, uh, there are moments where you just want to you want to burn it to the ground. And you were like, Did, didn't I want to go skydiving? Didn't I want to? Didn't, couldn't, couldn't, we, couldn't we just get the politeness and the small talk of life feels like it has been eviscerated. And that is really freeing. And I, I kind of recommend it. I really do.
1: I, t- I think that sounds like a great plan to get rid of all of that. Um, and <laughs> you were saying about the sort of again, I mean, I, I, I know that this will be recorded and some of our gesticulation <laughs> won't be seen. So I'm, I promise again, in for your from your perspective, this benevolence, permanent benevolence of medicine, because while. It it was sort of in many respects, of course, brilliant what happened and that you, you know, were one of, as you say, the three patients with magic, 3% of patients with magic ca- cancer. You're told things that I couldn't believe when I read them. So the assistant physician says to you, the sooner you get used to the idea of dying, the better. That doesn't seem to me to be sensitive advice.
2: I, I think I... Uh... Yeah. I remember I was going in to just get, um, I just had a huge abdominal surgery and she was just supposed to check my staples. And I remember I was just so, I was uh, so, I was so frightened by this, you know, body that didn't feel like mine anymore. And and she was my age. And I remember wondering like, Oh, do you have a kid too? Like are what's like, what are the the weights you're carrying in your life? And, and then she, uh, she was like, yep. Yeah, well, and I said, she said, how are things? And she meant medically, I think. And I said, well, let's, it's actually been hard. I wasn't sure how to say the thing, which was, um, I really don't know how to do this. I really don't. And I, so I just said, it's really, it's just been hard. And then, yeah, she said, well, the sooner the idea that you're going to die, the better. And um, and I, uh, there's, um, I've met such, you know, I've had such wonderful experiences with some, especially just gorgeous nurses and life-changing, wonderful people. And I've met some real uh the sense that sort of the lights went off on, like a, on caregiving and that they feel like they can't possibly know to love you, like, like you, let alone love you, because I think the weight of suffering is sometimes just too hard. I, I just think the problem though for patients and really just the general problem of having any kind of intractable problem is, is almost right away you get the message that you are likely disposable, that accidentally that your life maybe might not be quite as valuable as other people's. And so when I would even just get offhanded comments like that, it was very hard for me to, to remind myself that I was still, I, that my life was still somehow important. And that I, that maybe I deserved my chance to, to try. That was uh that has been kind of honestly like a long, um, it's been a hard thing to get over is the feeling of wanting my life to
1: matter too. So you felt in a sense that as you say, you know, often it was more like you would sort of, you just use the word disposable and sort of like kind of lab rats in an experiment rather than individuals.
2: I found that the second I was in a hospital gown, it's like you could be 200 million years old and no one would know. You're just sort of like a human form in the shape of sheets. And I had all kinds of, um, I always found, honestly, that was when it was a doctor or a healthcare provider that was my age, that I felt extra affronted. Where I was like, we're the same. Partly because I, I frankly, I work in the same institution. So I'd be wearing like a fancy blazer and coming out of something. And then I'd have to change into a hospital gown. And then all of a sudden I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a person. I'm not a colleague. I'm not in anything. and so I I I found that the role change made me feel very confused about whether it was an us or whether I was, whether being a patient would take over so much more of my identity than I'd hoped.
1: What's remarkable is how we said at the beginning, I think, did you describe yourself as a geek at the beginning or have I just, (laughs) you know, you you take so much into your own hands and and extraordinarily at one stage, you know, it's sitting down with your friend um, who's a doctor only then do you discover that what you've been told is a is a tumor that needs radiation is actually a fat cell. And it's your work that, that establishes that, that is the thing that puts your mind at rest.
2: Yeah. I was a little shocked about the degree to which I played medical detective. I mean, I have, this is not something that ever comes across well, because I sometimes do these, you know, keynotes or things for medical conferences. And it always is a little awkward when I get to the part where I get a question and then I say, well, to be honest, I have quarterbacked most of my own medical care and I am not, <laughs> I am a historian of American religion. I mean, it is absolutely <laughs> wild that I should be doing that. And I, um, but because my, um, because my treatment was, uh, so uncommon that I really couldn't even ask most oncologists or most people in the cancer center, you know, what, sh- what should I do now? Or um, that because I, I, the, I was sort of on the cutting edge, but I was on the, the sort of cutting edge of medicine. And it was the, it was a sharp place to be. And so I had to maintain a lot more control. And I have unfortunately saved my own life a few times. And uh and, and I think that's partly why I still um, why I know what it's like to live with that much uncertainty, is you want to let go. We all want to trust the people we're given to care for us, but every now and then we can't. And learning to live with that much fear has been a, a huge part of this process.
1: Um, I could talk to you for hours more. I wish I could, but I can't because I've got questions from the audience and they're, as always, brilliant questions. But I do just want to hear in your words, and I normally ask this at the beginning, but I feel like I'm going to ask it at the end now, which is, if you could just explain the title really.
2: Yeah. No care for being human is just the gently medium depressing thing that I started to say because I I wanted a way to say um it is okay that we are not invincible. It really is. It is okay that we need more love and help than we thought. Like it is okay to be human again today. Like there's no there's no cure for this. So that became my little shorthand way of trying to create that create that gentler space for myself and I hope others
1: that as I said some of the questions coming in from our audience so I'm just going to get through as many as I can and I'm sorry if I don't get to your question but hopefully we've we've answered a lot of it and I should start off by you are amazing says anonymous attendee thank you, <laughs> thank <honesty>. you anonymous <laughs> thank you for your honesty bless you. you will help so many so, I mean, it's similarly, you did sort of, I think you answered this largely about faith, but a lot of people were asking about whether a lack of certainty is connected with having faith and, and, let, and uh, faith in God and letting go of trying to control all things. Yeah, that's exactly
2: right. It's like, I didn't feel less, I guess, mostly because I didn't have a lot of the uh, room. I didn't have a lot of room for pride. <laughs> and then I didn't have a lot of room for um, some of my more abstract and much cherished <laughs> ethereal thoughts what i needed was i needed um, i needed the truths that could carry me and for me that was the deep and abiding love of god and the the desperate need for church and community i work in a divinity school meaning that almost everyone i teach with is a pastor/professor and i mostly teach people who are going to serve in some kind of nonprofit or congregational setting. And so those were hilariously, the people who um, abused their visiting privileges by popping in their little clerical collar and showing up during my <laughs> during my hospital visits. And it's their love that showed me how unbelievably concrete our love can be. It's just, um, you know, prayers and hopes and dumb cards and, uh, and all of that really made my theology much more concrete than it had been before.
1: And um, somebody asks what advice you would give to your friend supporting you when yeah. you're clear, I don't think it was quite, we wouldn't call it as as definitive or clear as that, but do they say, my friend is a mum in remission, but every day for her is, might it come back today and extreme worry? Yes.
2: Oh man. Right. Bless her. Rem- remission. I mean, the chronic uncertainty, right. That we're describing. I think one of the things that feels uh, really precious to me is when you know, you're the friend that just doesn't forget is it doesn't mean you have to bring it up all the time, but just um, sometimes when I'm trying to be like, I have a friend right now who's having a, a really difficult time with her cancer. And I just try to put in like a little calendar thing to remind myself, like in, in three months, ask about like, just to be the person that doesn't forget because almost everyone else will forget. And also, um, oh my gosh, my sister said the most precious thing to me when I, cause the feeling I had with anxiety was that I was just going to, um, that I wasn't, I don't know how to say it except to say I wasn't real, like the way other people were real. Like everybody had these normal durable lives, but I was somehow not, I just like part of the part of that humanity anymore. And she said, um, Oh my dear, you are loved. You are loved. You are loved. You will not disappear. You are here, and just like grounding people, like oh my love, you are you are here, and just giving giving each other that um, assurance that like today, today, today,
1: you are here, and I am right by you. And another question um, somebody asks uh, in the book. Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch album. the dying Maury Schwartz is quoted as saying, the truth is once you learn how to die, you learn how to live and death ends a life, not a relationship. Sorry, I suddenly feel <laughs> and yeah. what can you say about these statements?
2: Yeah, there is, because uh, what we're asking always of our lives is, um, will we ever get to a moment of arrival of feeling there? there is enough? And the answer of course is no. And so dying can't be possibly like a summation of anything. It can just be a letting go. And in the meantime, we just get to look back and say, which parts of this will I never have enough of? And that, that, that sounds like the part of that quote that I love so much about teaching us how to live, about the looking back and, um, and knowing exactly what we would never, ever let go of if we ever had a, a single choice. I guess that to me is always like, death can't possibly be letting go. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's just the, the weight of all these loves pressed down on a single moment, you know, but there will, I don't think we get ends really not real ends.
1: Lara asks how you ride the wave of emotions about things that you understand logically. Mm. Yeah, totally.
2: (laughs) So it's so, so awful, isn't it? To both know something and then have to feel it at the same time. Yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm pretty terrible at trying to outsmart my pain. I'll do this all the time with things that are really, really hard. And I just try to make a wall and not look over it. And what an awful plan because then I can't nearly ask for help. So I, uh, I think unfortunately it's that it's like, and it's always that terrible uh, quote on the therapist wall that has a forest and then it says the only way out is through. But, um, unfortunately knowing things is not, is, is never the escape hatch. I hope it is at 2 a.m. I will be as scared as I have um, tried to think my way out of. And I think that's why we need each other so much. It's like in that moment, in that moment where we, we need others to reflect back to each other. The-
1: oh, I think you frozen. In- okay, You froze for a minute. Sorry. Oh, but I'm
2: back. You're I was just back. saying we're goldfish. We're back. I'm just saying we're goldfish. We forget. <laughs> that's why we need other people at the end. <laughs>
1: Well, that's the part that we 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 only missed the end, and I I think you you've said that. Um somebody says that they were diagnosed with stage three colon cancer in March twenty twenty, and they have I'm sorry. Um, so sorry, um, still not learned to live in the moment, and I think the fear of um, recurrence is what holds them back. And um, wondered any tips please on getting yeah. on with daily things.
2: Wow, yeah. Cause once you've been there, you can't unlearn it. And that's, uh, that's hard. Cause that's locked in our bodies as well as in our minds. Um, a couple things I started going to see a therapist who was especially good at, um, helping undo some of the effects that I was experiencing around medical trauma. And I never would have put it like that, but I realized I just had a lot of embodied stuff that was freaking me out when I would, because part of being a hospital person is you have to keep being a hospital person. And so that the effects of it sometimes are cumulative. So finding a really sensitive therapist I found too is helpful for me in in getting in touch with um undoing the weight of some of those experiences. But I guess the other bit is there were a couple little things I got good at in cancer that I do try to hold on to. Like I'm um when the future went away. I did get pretty good at feeling the magic. Do you know what I mean? Like the magic of the day and like the magic of a person and those that kind of feeling where things sort of stretch out and become lovely. I think not allowing the anxiety about the future to turn the volume up too high and prevent you from being to like sort of experiencing that special superpower, which is that, um, is that, you know, things are limited. And when you do, you really you have a special perspective like and I find it it helps me have weirdly more fun than other people if I'm just going to say that in a self-righteous way like I I like I I buy a lot of costumes like I (laughs) I was like I was watching I couldn't just like watch the Cruella movie I needed everybody to have puppy costumes and I had the for all the little kids in my life or last week I had French food and ruined everyone's experiences by buying about 20 berets for everyone which the waiter did not enjoy (laughs) but like I am I'm letting the heightened present be also something that reminds us that we are still wonderfully here.
1: Do you think that the pandemic has in some way made people more ready to question that notion of, of being in control of our fate and subject to our own choices and, you know, made people more sympathetic to the idea that, that you have sort of forced upon you that experiences are not the ones, you know, that define us are not the ones we pick and to sort of look at yeah. suffering differently.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope that the the feeling of fragility is a thing that we can maybe accept with a little more generosity as being a part of our human condition. I think the temptation though will be that the, the second the kind of volume on fear gets turned down on the pandemic, that we'll go back to nothing is wasted, no regrets, <laughs> like listen, 1920s um, kind of uh, desire to recoup every experience. And while it is important to counter especially the flatness of pandemic time to know that it's okay that we grieve we grieve our losses we we lost we lost time but now perhaps we can be a little more honest about our uh, about our precarity our just the delicate web that we live in
1: and you write a Again, about bucket lists. You say when you're in the critical care, uh, cancer care unit, there's a whole load of people. They all seem to be called Caitlin, and they all <laughs> tell you you should be writing a bucket list. But you're not not convinced by by the sort of conventional bucket list and what it stands for. Yeah, it's such a tempting thing to make a
2: checklist to feel the the summation of our accomplishments in the United States. Everyone is always just about to take their children to Disneyland, or someone else really wants. To- to do surfing in Bali, but there's a lot of like holding one another and b- with the photos that just say, you are my soulmate, Dennis, my one, my, my, my everything hashtag hashtag blessed. And I, I think the, the hope is that there's like, a there's a, there's a feeling that we'll get to that, uh, that, but which unfortunately becomes a kind of experiential capitalism. like collect every experience and that'll make us a person. And I think, uh, I mean, bucket list can be wonderful. It helps point us in directions of people we want to be, like little things we want to nurture in ourselves, or maybe like, I don't want to be quite so fearful. I would like to reconnect with so-and-so, but it's a it's a terrible
1: idea if we imagine there's such a thing as a finished life. I'm going to just finish up. I think there's time. Pro- Do you mind if I sort of sneak in one 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 more question? Oh, well, there are so many lovely comments just saying how brilliant that you are and um, um and how, how amazing and what an inspiration of course um too many of those for me to read out all of them but um, do you have any tips for giving strength to a dearest loved one without crumbling and um, you are wonderful sending hugs to you beautiful that person
2: oh oh I think in the face of um pain we feel helpless and that is that is like that is really okay no none of us really have very fixable lives because if we could fix them we would And so just being that person who just, you know, when you can tell that someone doesn't pity you, they just, they like heart forward, want to lean in a little, being that person, just being the like presence, even virtually, just being the loving presence without non-anxious loving presence is my absolute favorite. Also actual presence. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge (laughs) fan of people just like, buy my love, (laughs) buy my love friends, send me dumb things. It's my favorite. I'll, 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 I'll never say a bad word about it.
1: You mean actual presents with, with oh real, just I want
2: gifts, I want cold, hard vouchers, not vouchers, but like I love it when people i mean i I just got a giant stuffed animal that looked like it looks like a succulent and has eyes, I'm like that's for no reason, but like do I love that person more than my other friends? I absolutely do, yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, I'm sure people can tell why this book is so brilliant because at the same time as, as a lot of laughter and humour there's also the pathos and great sadness and you write so brilliantly and thank you so much for it and thank you so much indeed for joining us and thank you everyone indeed for coming. Hannah, gorgeous conversationalist. Thank you.
0: This week's podcast starred Kate Bowler and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producers were Dana Alcolt and myself, and the editor was John Dorsey. Kate's book, No Cure for Being Human, is out now from all good bookshops. We're hosting thinkers every night of the week at How To Academy, including live on stage events in central London with guests like Emily Radikowski, John Cleese, and Philip Pullman, and live streams with Noam Chomsky, Fatima Buto and many more. You can find it all at howtoacademy.com.